affected them strongly. One such person is the famous philosopher Bertrand Russell, who once gave a lecture entitled, Why I'm Not a Christian. This lecture then turned into a short pamphlet, uh, which I've read. In this lecture, he gives ten reasons or so about why he didn't believe in God, why he didn't believe in Christ, and why he didn't believe in the church. And though he gave ten reasons of different things why he didn't believe, of note to us is his comments he made concerning the denial of the second coming of Christ. He reasoned that the biblical account of Jesus depicts him as believing that he was coming back in the lifetime of his disciples. And yet that has not happened. And therefore, Bertrand Russell concludes, you cannot trust the words of Jesus because things in the future didn't take place according to what he said. They simply weren't true. Here, here's what Russell said. He said, Christ certainly thought that his second coming would occur in the clouds of glory before the death of all the people who were living at that time. There are a great many texts that prove that. He says, for instance, You shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man come. Then he says, There are some standing here which shall not taste death until the Son of Man comes into his kingdom. And there are lots of places where he is quite clear that he believed that his second coming would happen during the lifetime of many then living. That was the belief of his early followers and was the basis of a good deal of moral teaching. When he said, take no thought of the morrow and things of that sort, it was very largely because he thought the second coming was going to be very soon and that all ordinary mundane affairs of life did not count. In that respect, Russell concludes, clearly he was not so wise as some other people have been and he was certainly not superlatively wise. The, the delay in this coming of the second the delay of the second coming of Christ is what caused one of the things that caused Bertrand Russell not to be a Christian. And he's the one in a long line of people who've denied the second coming of Christ. In our text this morning, Second Peter chapter three, verses three through nine, we are going to see Peter warning his readers against such people who deny that Christ will return again. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles. Second Peter chapter three, we're going to be looking at verses three through nine. I want to read them, but I want to catch the context in verse 1 because it, it really starts there. That's the flow of thought. Peter writes, This is now the second letter, beloved, that I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, spoken by your apostles. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it has been from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by His Word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance." 
Well, last week we looked at verses 1 and 2 of this passage. My message was entitled, Things to Remember. And Peter gave us four things to remember. He said, first of all, remember the first epistle. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which letters, both of which, plural, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Right? He wrote the first epistle to stir up our mind, minds by way of reminder. So we had to remember the first epistle. We reviewed the first epistle last week. And then he said, this is the second letter I'm writing to you. So Peter told us, secondly, we should remember the second letter he wrote. And thirdly, Peter said, you need to remember the words of the prophets. Verse 2. Remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. Right? What it is that they predicted and anticipated. Everything has certainly come true. And the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. That's the commandment of Jesus. Remember these things. And in many ways, our text this morning merely continues on the same theme as it did last week. But, but Peter escalates it. He makes it more important in some ways than verses 1 and 2. So you can take one, my message last week and kind of put it on the back burner and say, that's a, that's a good message, but this is more important for us this morning. He says, know this first of all. You can see the theme there of Second Peter, right? Know and grow. Right? Know about Christ. Know the truth and then grow in Him. We see the knowledge part coming out here in verse 3. But if he says, know this first of all, it's not the first in time that you should know this. Rather, it's the first in priority. I mean, Jesus showed that very well. It was at the end of His ministry when Jesus spoke mostly about His second coming. And, you know, we read in Matthew 24, and Matthew 25 as well continues that theme, just right before He's going to die. It's like the last thing He put on their minds. What do you talk about, your sons or daughters, right? The month before you die, when you know you have a terminal illness, right? Don't you speak about the most important things? The things to really keep in mind? And so that's what Christ is doing in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, 25. That's what Peter is doing here. He's saying, listen, know this first of all. Know this is top priority. You need to know about His second coming. Remembering the, the words of the epistles are good. Remembering the words of the prophets are good. Remembering the commandment of Jesus is good. But this, you know what, is better. It's first, you need to know this. And what does He call us to remember? He calls us to remember the second coming of Christ. Peter says in verse 4 that mockers will come, questioning His coming, saying, where is the promise of His coming? He identifies them as mockers. Now, if you try to figure out who these people are, it's somewhat difficult. You know, maybe these are people outside the church. Maybe these are people inside the church. I think they're the false teachers right inside the church. Teachers in the church, professing a faith in Christ, and yet denying it. They are mockers. They are denying, as chapter 2, verse 1 says, denying their Master who bought them, denying the fact that He's coming back False teachers right inside the church, mocking, saying, where is the day of His coming? And mocking, that's a, that's a word of ridicule. I mean, these people are ridiculing you and just kind of, kind of laughing. Say, Do you really think that Jesus is coming again? I mean, how long has it been since He left? Thousands of years? Is there any sign of His coming? Are you fools? You are fools if you think He's coming again. He's not. That's what these mockers are. And Peter says, amidst all their mocking, you remember the second coming. This is my title of my message this morning. Remember the second coming. He'll climax the verse in his thought in verse 10. It's actually we'll get at next week. But verse 10 says this, The day of the Lord will come. It's certain. His coming is for sure. Don't forget it. His coming is sure. 
My message this morning just covers the preamble, talking about how it is that we know, what it is that we should trust, what it is that we should know, first of all, and not forget regarding the coming of Christ. I have three points because he emphasizes three things. First of all, don't forget that mockers are coming. This is verses 3 and 4. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where's the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues as it was from the beginning of creation. Peter tells us, don't be surprised when people come and deny the second coming, and don't be surprised when people come and mock you for your belief in the second coming. They will come, is what Peter says. There's no doubt about it. Now, at this point, certainly Peter is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these things, but it's not like he needed extra special revelation at this point to make this, because there have always been people around who have denied the coming of God, and there always will be people who deny the coming of God. Consider some of the Old Testament. The psalmist, in Psalm 42, verse 3, explains how his enemies are saying to me all day long, where's your God? And they're mocking him. Psalm 115, verse 2, the psalmist says, How all the nations are saying, Where now is your God, O Israel? In Malachi's day, the cry was, Where's the God of justice? We can get away with what we want. There's no accountability before a returning Lord. And Sennacherib rose to fight against Judah. Before he did so, he sent a letter to the Israelites seeking to sway them from their trust in the Lord. Mocking them, saying the gods of the other nations couldn't save them. And essentially his message is this, right? They couldn't save them. Where's your God that your God will be able to deliver you? People have always mocked the coming of God. And there always will be people who will deny the return of Christ. Oh yes, there will. In fact, verse 3 has the same feel that chapter 2 verse 1 did. Remember it says, False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. There have always been false prophets. There will always be false teachers. And there have always been people who have denied the coming of Christ. And there always will be people denying the coming of Christ. They will arise. Now, it's not like they weren't arisen at that time. I think Peter was battling with some people who were actually saying these things. The, the sense here is, though, that you, know what, you may not have received them yet at your church, <clears throat> but they are coming to a church near you soon, is what Peter's message was. They're out there, and they are coming, and they will at some point come and visit you. Now, Peter says this would take place in the last days. Uh, don't let that confuse you. Sometimes we can think about the last days at some long, distant time. Maybe he's talking only about our days. But in the Scripture, when it speaks about the last days, it speaks about the days from Christ until His second coming. We are living in the last days. Like Hebrews begins. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions, in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son. When has He spoken to us in His Son? Ever since Christ came the first time. Ever since the day of His apostles. The last days referred to Peter's days and continues right up through our day. Mockers will come in the last days. We're living in the last days. They've always been. If you would chase church history, I'm sure, down through all the ages, you could probably find people in every century, if there was enough documentation, who were denying the return of Christ. Bertrand Russell was not unique. Mockers will come of his mocking. They will say, where is his coming? 
Now, it is well known, it was well known to the early church that Jesus had promised to return again. Consider some of these verses. Jesus said in John 14, verse 3, If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself. I will come again, receive you to Myself. Jesus made the promise in John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. As we read in Matthew 24, just as the lightning flashes from the east to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. When, when Jesus returns again, all eyes will see Him. That's what He's saying. He said, if someone's out there saying, I'm the Christ, or I'm the Christ, don't believe Him. Because when Christ comes back, it's going to be clear for all to see. It's going to be destructive. Matthew 24, verse 37, the coming of the Son of Man will be like in the days of Noah. It's the days before the flood. They're eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. They did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. It's going to be a surprise to many. Just the days of Noah. The day he went into the ark was the day the rain began to fall. Pronounced judgment upon the world. He says that's what's going to be. Before then, they were just eating and drinking. Life was going on. Que sarah, sarah. This is wonderful. And then this flood came. And they're like, whoa, we didn't expect that. So also the coming of the Son of Man. And Jesus says, be on the alert. For you do not know which day the, your Lord is coming. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory... And all the angels with Him. Then He will sit on His glorious judgment throne. Jesus was very clear to His disciples He's coming back again. But, but it's interesting. Jesus didn't just say He's coming back again to His disciples. And there's trial. The leading chiefs, the leading, leading rulers, and the chief priests, and the elders of the people. Jesus said to them, You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Oh, you will see Me come someday, people. They said he blasphemed at that time when the high priest tore his robe. Saying he blasphemes. He's claiming himself, I'm God, I'm going to be the one returning on the clouds, just like Daniel had said. When Jesus ascended to heaven, we see angels, two men in white. So the, the disciples saw Jesus go up like this as the men were like, whoa, what just happened? And they just stood there gazing and these men came along, probably angels, just said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you've watched Him go into heaven. The apostles picked up on this and made this the core of their message, the return of Christ to come and judge. It's a clear message. He preached to Cornelius that Jesus was returning to judge the living and the dead. Paul preached to those in Athens that Christ was appointed to judge the world. Acts 17.31 And the epistles are flooded with uh, information about the coming of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11:26. As often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. 1 Thessalonians 4:16. The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, making itself known, come in there in His return. James 5:7. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. 1 Peter 1.13 Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 John 3.2 Beloved, we are now children of God. It has not appeared to us yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. Right? When He appears, when He comes, we will share in His glory because we are His children by faith in Christ. The theme of the return of Christ dominates the last book of the Bible. Revelation begins by mentioning the return of Christ. It ends by mentioning the return of Christ. Revelation 1.7 Behold, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And the book ends 
with Jesus testifying, yes, I am coming quickly. Just a quick survey. Heard someone, uh, I, I forget my preparation this week. This, the, my statistics are wrong, but you get the spirit of it. There's something like 300 chapters in all the New Testament, and there are something like 350 references to the coming of Christ in the New Testament. There are more references to the coming of Christ than there are chapters in the New Testament. It's one a chapter. I mean, the, the return of Christ is a dominant theme in Scripture. It is essential to Christianity. The message of Christianity says that our Messiah has come. He's been rejected by the Jews, was crucified for our sins, but in crucifying, pure sacrifice, God raised Him from the dead because death could not contain Him. Seated up, right hand, the God the Father on high, where He waits till His enemies be made a footstool for His feet and He will come and return and rule and reign in His kingdom. That is Christianity. Now there's all types of debate within Christianity about when He will come. What sort of kingdom will he have? And there's lots of talk about that. But of the one thing that all of those people hold in common is they believe Jesus is going to come back. He's returning. Of that there is no doubt. And that is what the mockers are doubting here. The very fact of his coming. And I just say remember his second coming. Don't forget that there have been and there always will be people who deny the return of Christ. And I, I know there's a reason why they deny the return of Christ is because it's so crucial to the faith. You take away the return of Christ and you have just stripped Christianity of all its power. Don't forget mockers are coming. Well, look at verse 4 and see exactly what they say. They say, where is the promise of His coming? And here's their argument. Right? He says, ever since the fathers fell asleep... All continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. The reference here to fathers is a reference to those who have gone before them. Probably clear back to the patriarchs. Probably clear back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You can look up Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 on that or Romans 9, verse 5. But these mockers are saying this. Ever since Abraham, all has been the same. Abraham was 2000 B.C. It's been 2,000 years and God has not visited us yet. Ever since the creation, nothing has changed. We can read about what it was like in Abraham's day and that's just like what it is in our day. How do you speak of this cataclysmic event that's going to come at the return of Christ? Nothing has changed. What gives you reason to think that something's going to change in the future? What do you think Jesus, why, why do you really think that Jesus is coming back? What gives you reason to believe this? It's all been the same. You see their argument? They argue from a purely naturalistic, materialistic mindset. Some have called this uniformitarianism. How many of you heard that word? Quite a few of you. It's a long word. Some of you kids maybe haven't heard that word. It's a big word that means everything always remains the same. What was, is, and what is, always will be. So they look back to Abraham and they say, this is what it's been. It is incredible to me how up-to-date the Bible is. People say, oh, the Bible, that's such an old book. It's so out of date. These words were written 2,000 years ago, and yet scoffers today are saying the same thing. Evolutionists, those who believe in evolution, use the same fundamental arguments when they seek to describe the Bible today. They believe that what we see and observe today is what has always been since they don't observe miraculous intervention of God today, everything in the universe must be explained without the miraculous. Everything needs to be explained naturalistically. So if you go into a typical biology department across our land, the premise is entirely naturalistic. 
If you go into a geology department across the land, the premise is entirely naturalistic. If you go into a physics department across the land, their premise is entirely naturalistic. Now, listen, I say that's okay. That's good when dealing with observable, repeatable phenomenon. I mean, our, our universe runs on the laws of physics. As a physics major myself, I rejoice in those laws. Newtonian mechanics are wonderful. In fact, that's what allows me to stand here today. And if the laws of physics were like, like partially working sometimes, or worked, whatever, 59 minutes out of the hour, if we like float around for a minute and then come back, that'd be awful, all right? It always happens that way. It is, you can look at things naturalistically, and we ought not to expect them to change with observable, repeatable phenomena. But when you begin to deal with philosophical questions of origin and cause and creation, you really need to think beyond the natural because origins are not observable. Origins are not repeatable. And in some ways, the miraculous best explains the data. We need to be open to taking God into account and all scientists need to be open to taking the miraculous into account. But scientists today think otherwise. They think you need to explain everything based on what you observe today. They think that today is the key to the past. As we don't observe God overtly intervening in the world today, we cannot use Him to explain what took place in the past. It's, it's the error that these people made here in Second Peter 3. It's the error that people take today. And so you think about this. When modern scientists are asked the question, how is it that life began? They start with naturalistic explanations. They observe animals change from generation to generation, and they do. And they say, well, that must be the key to explaining the past. There must be change, 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 change. must be life started in a warm pool someplace where all the organisms of life were there, and they just happened to come together, and an organism just happened to be made with abilities to reproduce itself. And it reproduced itself, and then again, again, and then, then evolved. And over millions and millions of years, we have different species of animals we see on the planet. Or as they say, from the goo to the zoo to you. Right? If you're naturalistic, perspective only, that's all you got. You don't have a God who created When modern scientists today ask, how do you explain the mountains and the oceans and the fossils and the canyons and the coal beds and the caves? Again, they think naturalistically. They look at what's happening today. How much is happening today of catastrophic proportions? Not a lot. Oh, maybe Mount St. Helens, every generation, maybe. So they say, okay, so the, the present has to be the key to the past. Things today change slowly. They must have changed slowly in the past. Rivers must have cut through mountains bit by bit. Fossils must have formed through localized mudslides or windstorms. Mountains must have slowly risen. Tectonic plates must have moved slowly across the planet rather than catastrophe like the flood perhaps explains. It's huge miraculous intervention of God to, to just change the way the world is. Maybe God created that way. I want to. I want to deal with these scientists. I'm just going to, with my finger, carve out the Grand Canyon. There you go. And I want to put my artistic touch on that. That could have been very well the case. When it comes to the origin of the universe, with all its physical properties like gravity and electromagnetic forces and chemical properties, you ask a scientist or physicist to explain that. They're even more at a loss than they are with uh, evolution and biology. They just say, well. It's always been. I mean, have you ever thought about how is it that 
the gravitational force exists. Like, it just always has been? How is it that uh, uh, electromagnetic waves work to form light? It's just always been. <laughs> you can't. It's either just always been, or you say, well, luck, chance. It just, it just happened to be that way. It's like bizarre. These things are so ingrained and so regular that you just, they never think about it. They don't have any answers to those kind of questions. We do. We just say, God's the one who established the laws. Solved. So ingrained is this type of naturalistic thinking in the world of science today. If you attempt to bring God into the equation, you're laughed out of the laboratory. (laughs) You're one of those naive biblical literists, huh? You will be mocked and you will be scorned and you'll be labeled it's because in the mind of many secular scientists, their assumption going into the laboratory is you have to explain everything naturalistically. If you attempt to bring God into the equation, all of a sudden you have violated their most scientific presupposition which cannot be tolerated. They argue that doing so is to bring a presupposition into science which is hitting at the very heart of the scientific message. You, method. You cannot do that. What's ironic about this is that they deny one presupposition with their naturalistic presupposition as well. And they hold so tenaciously to the naturalistic presupposition, they deny the other. Well, that's enough science talk. Why do people think this way? It comes down to verse 3. Because they follow after their own lusts. According to Romans 1, God has made Himself known in the hearts of men. He's made himself clearly known to all through the creation of the world. Everybody knows about his divine power and his eternal attributes. There's not anybody who walks on the planet that doesn't know about God. And yet, because people want to pursue their own unrighteousness without accountability, they take that truth that God has made known available to them and they suppress it. Romans 1.18 They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They pack it away in a nice suitcase, put it up on the shelf so they don't have to think about that. Now I can go and pursue my own unrighteousness. That's the process it always takes. They deny God's power. They deny God's attributes. They refuse to give Him honor. Refuse to give Him thanks. Why? So they can follow after their own lusts. And if you deny that you don't, if you deny a creator, you no longer have a judge. If you deny a judge, you no longer have accountability. If you no longer have accountability, then you can live as you please. And those who live as they please are those who follow after their own lusts. See, there's, there's another motive going on here with those who deny the second coming of Christ. They want their own ways. And they'll go a great lengths to get it, even denying the Creator who has set eternity in their hearts. Rare is the one, perhaps impossible, maybe living a contradiction, who would deny God and then live a better, more holy, more righteous life. Atheism doesn't end in righteous people. Atheism ends in Hitler's and Stalin's. That's where it ends. And and lusts are what drive the atheistic mindset there to begin with. And people will deny that, even denying the Creator who has set eternity in their hearts. Suppress the truth and the righteousness. So you need to know that's what behind some bigger philosophical ideas of our day. It's all for the ability to live without accountability. So he's talking about there. That's where they're following after their own lusts. Well, let's move on. Peter says, don't forget that mockers are coming. Here's a second thing that he tells us to remember. Don't forget that all is not the same. 
Don't forget that all is not the same. Peter does a masterful job diffusing the argument to these scoffers who deny the return of Christ. Verses 5-7 through seven are a direct response to the mockers who are claiming uniformitarianism and deny the return of Christ. Verse 5 sets it up. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. In other words, when these mockers are maintaining that it's all been the same since Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and David, and Solomon, and Hezekiah, right up to, De- to Peter's day, it's all been the same. 2,000 years. For 2,000 years, remain the same. And take note here that their argument is probably even stronger if made today. Because we're 2,000 years after Peter wrote, and their argument would still hold the same. I don't see cataclysmic return of God. It's been 4,000 years. I don't see much difference between where we're living here in America in 2009 as opposed to what was taking place 2000 B.C. It remains the same. But Peter points out that all's not been the same. He brings out that the flood destroyed the earth long ago. And then he brings out how the final judgment awaits those who deny His coming again and how the final judgment is going to be a destruction of the world as well. Well, before we look at the details of what he says, I want you to notice this little phrase about how Peter transitions. He says, when they maintain this, here it is, it escapes their notice. The New American Standard translation here is very gentle. It's like, escapes their notice. Like, oh, they, they just they forgot about it. But some of your translations say some other things. What do some other translations say at this point? What do you say if you're looking at it differently? They deliberately forget, is what the NIV says. What else? you got a couple other translations here I know what's going on. Deliberately overlook is ESV. New King James, I know someone's got the New King James. MacArthur Study Bible people, Greg, do you have that? New King James? Willfully forget. Deliberately forget, deliberately overlook, you know, and, and perhaps that is the thrust of the word. They are, they are willfully forgetting these things. And that's why my point here is don't forget. They willingly forgot these things. Escape their notice, but let it not escape your notice, beloved. Don't forget what God has done on this planet. Look at verse 5. He says, When they maintain this, it escapes their notice. They willfully forget, whatever, that by the word of God... The heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded with water. In these two verses, Peter mentions creation and destruction. We see creation in verse 5, destruction in verse 6. He says there was a time when this world came into existence. And this world came into existence, and this point is crucial, with His Word. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And throughout the six days of creation, you see God speaking, and you see it was. He said, let there be an expanse, and there was an expanse. He said, let the earth sprout vegetation, and the earth sprout vegetation. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens, and there were stars. God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures, and there were swarms of living creatures. God said, let the earth bring forth living (coughs) creatures, and it was so. Finally, God crowned His creation with the creation of man in His image. Whatever God speaks takes place. The power of that. Amazing. For a boss, we know how we can speak and have someone else do it. But he spoke it and nature obeyed him. God spoke and the world was created. That's the point that Peter's making here in verse 5. By the Word 
of God the heavens and earth were created. God's Word is powerful. The writer of Hebrews says it's by the Word of God that the worlds were prepared so that what is seen was not made out of that which is visible. God spoke and stuff came into being. Perfectly what he said, God created ex nihilo, to use a Latin phrase, ex out of, like exit, nihilo, nil, like nothing, out of nothing, ex nihilo. And he did it by his word. When God speaks, the creation obeys his voice. Okay? Let's put that thought just on the back burner because we'll see that again. But we need to just continue here through verse 5. Peter emphasized the creation account in verse 5 here with water. It was formed out of water and by water. If you read through Genesis 1, you see the presence of water in creation. 